Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, October 19th, 2012. Ah, it's a cool, rainy day here in central Indiana, enjoying a uh, nice, warm mug of decaf Earl Grey, a little spot of lemon, some honey in it. <laughs> it's like the perfect fall weather drink. Oh, love it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy and bizarre things being said out there regarding God, how to do church, stuff like that. And, well, what we do is we slow down, open up our Bibles, and we test it. Yeah, Test it. You know, the first Thessalonians chapter five, verse 11, test everything. Hold of that, which is good. That's the idea. You know, you, you got to do it with an open Bible and you need to do it with the understanding that uh, because Satan is a master manipulator of the Bible, that you, you need to employ some just good basic hermeneutics. OK, uh, in fact, one of the things we talk about here regularly at Fighting for the Faith are the three primary rules of sound biblical interpretation. They are Context, context, and context. Now keep in mind, context, 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 those three rules, they are not the only rules when it comes to, well, properly engaging in biblical exegesis. And the idea is this, is that you, you, know, you want to be able to read a book properly you know, for what it's worth, if you would. And so there's some other rules that come into play when context, context, context doesn't exactly cut it. So here's another rule. Are you ready? Scripture interprets Scripture. We've talked about this on Fighting for the Faith many a time, and you never really graduate past the basics. See, that's the thing. The best theologians out there are not the ones engaging in exotic, never-before-heard-of, innovative theological concepts. You know, (laughs) the best theologians are the ones who really, really, really have a firm grasp on, on, like, how the Bible works within itself. And they are able to push you to see things that are truly connected in Scripture that the amateur may not necessarily see. And so the idea is this, is that we create, we, well, actually, we don't create. The, the, God is the one who has given us doctrine, okay, and doctrines. And when the Bible teaches a concept clearly, we're to believe that. For instance, okay, there are people afoot within visible Christianity who are trying to well, neuter God. 
And it doesn't make any sense because when you look at the clear passages, God has chosen for himself masculine pronouns. But they they seem to know better than God the Holy Spirit what types of pronouns ought to be used regarding God. So they've come up with brand new, clever uh, translations that carefully omit any of the masculine pronouns because, well, the culture doesn't want to see that. And uh, people might have concepts about God that are really, you know, feminine. And so what they do is they just approach the scriptures and, and just start, you know, neutering God. Okay, well, can't do that. And so the idea is, is that we look at what the Bible says, what God has revealed. Scripture says, well, Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breathed. God, the Holy Spirit, has inspired the biblical authors. And so when God speaks to a subject, we aren't to sit there and go, you know, yeah, that, that biblical author, you know, if only he had lived today, he would know better than this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to correct that biblical author. See, because see, the problem is they're thinking of the human uh, instrument by the the person whom God, the Holy Spirit, inspired to write those texts. But see, the common author in all of the biblical texts is God, the Holy Spirit. So here's the idea. Where God's word speaks clearly, those passages govern regarding particular uh, doctrines or teachings or you know concepts within Christianity. There's you know, the, uh, theology kind of falls into categories, and then in those categories, there's specific doctrines and subsets of those doctrines. For instance, okay, are you ready for this? I know this is going to sound like rocket science. Are you ready? So if you know, just theoretically, if we were to say, okay, um, w- what does um, the Bible teach regarding baptism? Plain and simple, we go to the biblical text where baptism and what it does, who's doing it, what it's for, who it's for, are taught. Plain and simple. Okay, so you would go to clear passages that mention baptism, okay, and teach it. And those passages govern, okay? So the idea is is that you don't take a passage regarding, say, pneumatology and somehow make that a governing passage when it comes to baptism. You know, no, no, no. You go to the clear passages, okay? So you know, the, I know this is just seems kind of silly, redundant, uh, uh, basic, and common sense, but it isn't. There's a whole lot of people out there who are making claims regarding particular doctrines with no passages backing them up, like zero, okay? I'll give you an example, okay? Um, in fact, I'll give you two. Within American evangelicalism, okay, one of the one of the common catchphrases is: in order to become a Christian, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. Okay, okay, well that's um, fine and all, but where in Scripture does it say that that's what we need to do and that's how we become a Christian? Answer: Not a single passage says that. There's, in fact, there's no instances in Scripture new or old, of people inviting Jesus into their heart and thereby being saved. No, none whatsoever. Okay, let me give you another example. Okay, there are a whole lot of people out there within visible Christianity who say things like, baptism is you going public with your decision to become a Christ follower. Okay, now you, many of you probably have heard a statement to that effect. I've, I've heard it many times. But see, here's the idea. Um, what verse says that? What verse 
teaches that, if we're going to teach things, uh, we teach what God says regarding baptism or regarding how people become Christians, then we need to homologeo. That's a Greek word that means to say the same thing. That's homologeo. Homologeo is the uh, Greek word where we get the word confess, we, you know, confession. Okay, So the idea is, is that Christians are not called to invent doctrines. They're called to say the same thing as Scripture. Okay, so, you know, the idea behind discernment is real simple. Okay, Um, where scripture is silent, we're silent. Where scripture speaks to a subject, we're to speak. And when we speak to that subject, we're to say the same thing as the biblical texts. Plain and simple. If what you're saying isn't the same thing as what the text says as what God has revealed regarding a particular thing, then that teaching is to be rejected. You know, I used the, um, the, the analogy or you know, metaphor yesterday of illegal aliens. You see, within the, within the kingdom of God, false doctrines are illegal aliens. And, they're, um, and when it comes to immigration policy within the kingdom of God, um, illegal aliens have no status. In fact, they are rounded up and deported. So the, I, this is something we all get here in the United States. Okay, so that's the idea here is, is that false doctrine, those are illegal aliens. They, and if, they're, if somebody's put them to work in your church, well, they don't have any status to work within the kingdom of God. Those false doctrines must be rounded up and sent packing back to the kingdom of darkness, just plain and simple. So <laughs> that's the idea is that, um, you know, and, and so when we look at today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I'm kind of beginning to prepare for two segments in particular. I wrote a piece today for my Letter of Mark blog entitled, For Whom Do Pastors Exist? For Whom Do Pastors Exist? Now, if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, then you've you've probably heard sound bites that we've played from prominent seeker-driven pastors, including Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, Mark Beeson, Ed Young, and a host of others, who make the claim that the church doesn't exist for believers but exists for non-believers. Okay, now, just to prepare you for what we're going to be doing today, there isn't a single passage in the Bible that says that. Not one. And there's an irony behind that statement because the people making those statements are pastors. And we're going to talk about that today. And we're going to give you a biblical argument to refute the entire idea. We're going to give you a biblical argument that shoots down because that's usually their justification for the crazy shenanigans that they engage in in their church. So that's coming up. I've got a Patricia King update. And then, uh, and then, uh, like I, I wanted to get to this yesterday, but uh, time did not permit. I have a Stephen Furtick uh, excerpt from his uh, recent Ghost Stories sermon series where he literally tries to build a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, a pneumatology, uh, using his life experiences. Yeah, you can't do that. And so we're, it's a little bit more, uh, this, when it comes to the discernment scale, there's nothing like out, he doesn't, nothing he says that's like outrageous. It's just that the whole premise behind what he's doing couldn't be farther from what a pastor is supposed to be doing. So we're going to do that today. And then in hour number two, we have three fantastic gospel sermons um, by uh, Ron Hodel, Cy Van Manen, Manen, and Brent Kuhlman talking about the, uh, the, there's a passage in the Gospel of Mark about the rich young ruler, uh, the one who came to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the passage that they're all going to be preaching on. And I think it's going to be fascinating to listen to how each of them handle this text 
differently and in some ways similarly. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I, you know, I'm sitting here enjoying a warm, warm mug of uh, Earl Grey tea. Oh, man. Put, like I said, I put a little bit of lemon in it and just a smidge of honey. So it's got like the kind of the sour, sweet thing going on. And hi. <laughs> it's just one of those fall days here at, <laughs> in central India, enjoying the change in the weather. You know, because, you know, being a, a man of substantial girth, uh, hot weather and I just don't get along. The cooler weather and I, we're, we're best friends. We're buds. So <laughs> any of that. Anyway, we're going to dive into the program proper since we're doing a Patricia King update. We're going to just dive right into it. Here we go. Did you know that you have a fragrance? And you're going, well, yeah. See, I personally, I have a fragrance, and my wife doesn't particularly like it. But, you know, she requires that I bathe on a daily basis. But anyway, here's Patricia King and her recent video from the XP Media website entitled, You Have a Fragrance. Here's Patricia King. The topic of today's uh, devotional is open up ye gates. And I was thinking about Psalm 24. It says, open up ye gates and let the king of glory come come in. But that's not the uh, context that I want to use this in. What I want to use it in is is the opening up of what God has put in you. And- the opening up of what God has put in me. Did God put something in me that was closed? I'm not familiar with any passages that reveal this particular teaching or doctrine. So God has hidden something inside of me, but it was all closed up, and so he needs to open it up. Okay. I was just pondering about the opening up of a flower and how, you know, if someone gives you rosebuds, they're so beautiful, you know, they they come in a vase and they sometimes have baby's breath or greenery in it and that. There's these beautiful, beautiful rosebuds and they're all, you know, tight. They're not opened up yet. And over the next two or three days, you start to see them open up a little bit more and a little. Yeah, I've seen that happen. I, in fact, you know, being a rose bro, uh, one of the things the rose bro family has uh, had for literally my entire life is rose bushes so i'm familiar with how roses open but what does this have to do with open up ye gates of glory a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and inside that tight bud is all this detail all this life all this beauty that was never seen when it was all tight yes so you're exegeting a rose bud got it but when it opens up you see it all you see the fullness. And as it opens, more and more fragrance gets released. It's just beautiful. And so the fully open bud is is beautiful. The bud in itself is pretty, but there's nothing like a fully opened bud. Of- yeah, okay, got it. Yes, I'm familiar with the rose. Why are you exegeting a rose opening? Of, of, of the rose. And what I sense over you today is that God... <laughs> oh, man. Okay. This is weird because, I mean, Patricia King is looking me dead in the eye, you know, because she's pointing right at the camera. She says, what I'm sensing God saying about you. So apparently this is for me because, I mean, she's looking straight at me. As, Hang on. Let me look behind. Yep. There's nobody behind. So, says, apparently God, the Holy Spirit told Patricia King something about me. It's weird. Wants you to appreciate. Yeah. To appreciate who you are and everything that he's put inside of you. You are absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Have you seen any of those charts that they use in mean, the diagrams they use when, you know, they teach like, you know, human anatomy and stuff like that? Yeah. Inside of me, you know, there's like, you know, bones, 
blood vessels. There's a heart right in the middle of my chest, uh, uh, despite the fact that some of my critics claim I don't have one. Now it's there, and and I've got like a liver and a pancreas, and you know, and a colon, and 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 short and long intestines, and yeah. Have you seen pictures of those things? They're not pretty to look at. Yeah, I, I'm glad that there's something over all of them, you know, and they're neatly, neatly packaged together in such a way they don't have to look at them because those kind of, yeah, gross me out. Yeah. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have this fragrance about you that is so lovely. No, that's not what my wife says, especially after working in the yard on a hot day. But, but, it's, but it's kind of all locked up on the inside of you. And he says, open up, ye gates. Open up, ye gates, and let that beauty come forth. Have I ever mentioned the fact that Patricia King is the gift that keeps on giving? Wow. Open up in your heart and let it flood out. Open up your spirit and let that new nature flood out. Uh-huh. And what I sense from the spirit of God. It, uh, here we go again. Is that as you look upon the beauty within uh-huh. what he's created. On- you are aware of the fact that Jesus says that out of the heart. That would be like within me comes all kinds of vile and disgusting stuff, you know. Sin, you know, murder, theft, adultery, you know, coveting, all that kind of stuff starts within. Are you sure that you're teaching a biblical passage correctly here? The inside of you that is going to flow forth through you. It's going to flow forth from you Uh in a beautiful, beautiful way. Yeah, I'm doubting that. So... God loves you. Yeah, this is true. Because he, he died on the cross for my sins. That, that's how I know that's true because it says in Scripture, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. So I agree with you there. He loves you. He created you. Yes, true. He loves everything about you. He put detail on the inside of you. When he thinks of you, he delights. Now, Only because I'm in Christ, though. Um, see, that's the thing that's missing here is that those of us who are in Christ, who are been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We're in Christ and we're reckoned righteous because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So yes, this is true. But I mean, isn't it weird that you're talking about how God, you know, somehow delights in me apart from the fact that I'm in Christ? Yeah, that's just not so good. As you meditate on that yourself, on how much he loves you. Yeah, I'm not about to meditate about myself. That just seems ridiculous. Loves you, on how beautiful you are, then it's going to help. Beautiful. I mean, have you seen a picture of me? I mean, like, I got like a four day growth of beard going on in my face right now. I mean, wearing a T. I mean, I've got a perfect face for radio and and the body to boot. you open up and let that beauty be seen by others. Yeah, I open that up and they're going to arrest me. Because people are waiting to be in awe over the beauty that God has put in you. No, they're not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're d- <laughs> Seriously, what kind of n- narcissistic nonsense is... Well, that's what it is. It's just narcissistic nonsense. Moving along... From the Letter of Mark blog, that's my blog, you can find this at Letter of Mark, M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S. The headline reads, For Whom Do Pastors Exist? Written by yours truly. Not that I put any fragrance or anything like that on it. All right, so kind of give you the setup here. I mean, 
How many times have you heard pastors berating their uh, the people in their congregation saying, this church doesn't exist for you? Or saying things like, we need your seat, and you know, because we're not here for you, we're here for the person who's not already here. I mean, crazy things like that. And you're going, you know, there's something way screwy wrong with that, but I, you, you just don't quite know how to, you know, combat it. Well, this article, For Whom Do Pastors Exist, is, well, this is for you, Okay. I wrote, if I had $10 for every time I heard a seeker-driven pastor justify the crazy antics that happen in their churches by claiming that the church doesn't exist for believers, well, I'd be able to purchase James McDonald's home with cash. By the way, his home was $1.9 million. These uh, these seeker-driven antics, by the way, include things such as playing ACDC's Highway to Hell to open their Easter service, refusing to preach the Bible with any depth or accuracy, performing Michael Jackson's Thriller, reenacting the famous kiss scene from the Spider-Man movie and a whole host of other crazy stunts. See, all those things, you know, you say, why would you do that? Okay. In fact, let me give you just a, a, you know, a sampling from Stephen Furtick's uh, version of, of his, you know, sheep beating that he engaged in. Uh, Here's Stephen Furtick um, letting everybody at his church have it for coming to church, expecting to be fed. Here we go. A church for the overlooked, for the unloved, not for us to have as many different varieties of Bible studies. We got Beth Moore and Kay Arthur and Joyce Meyer. no. You know what we got? We got Jesus. We preach him. We preach so that people can come to faith in Christ, and we want them to get in a small group and serve so that other people can meet Christ. If you know Jesus, I am sorry to break it to you. This church is not for you. Yeah, that's right. So if you know Jesus, this church ain't for you. Yeah, but I just gave my life to Christ last week at Elevation. Last week was the last week that Elevation Church existed for you. So if you gave, you know, your heart to Jesus last week, then, well, Elevation Church doesn't exist for you. You're going, what is this? Well, it gets worse. In fact, um, here's a little bit more from that same sermon. You know, so church doesn't exist for you. And what does that all mean? Well, don't come here expecting to be fed God's word. Oh, no. You showed up to church this morning. Did you show up with a bless me, feed me, make me fatter preacher? I don't intend to do a thing you say, but I'm going to listen to you. And if you dadgum say one thing I don't like, I promise I'll cross my arms and cross my eyes at you the rest of the sermon. Did you show up to file a little bit more religious information in your already overloaded hard drive so that you could do absolutely nothing about it? The church is full of pot-bellied Christians waiting to shove their spiritual food down their mouth one more time, but they don't intend to do anything to bless anybody. You are a Pharisee. You sit on the front row. You might even take notes, but you take notes so you can argue with them with your roommate after church and how I don't really believe in all that. Yeah, but if we ever start turning in this front row Pharisee crowd, I don't think the teaching's deep enough. I would like a little more hermeneutical explanation on the original languages in the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Jesus says, shut up. Help somebody. Bless them. <laughs> so you come to church being to be, you know, expecting to be fed and for the pastor to go deep in God's word. What does Stephen Furtick says? Jesus says, shut up. Somebody, heal somebody, serve somebody, pray for somebody. Why don't you do something? Why don't you bring a lost friend to church with you next week? Watch Jesus change their life. And then you won't be worried about how loud the music was. You'll just hope that they meet Jesus. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, that, so that's Stephen Furtick's, you know, kind of version of it. And there's, I have um, sound bites from... Uh, all different pastors, all kinds of pastors from within the seeker-driven movement who have their own take on that. So that's the idea, okay? 
church doesn't exist for you. It doesn't exist for believers. Okay, by the way, that's a canard. It's, I mean, and it's a, like, it's a red herring. It's off topic. So I'm going to try to help you out here. Okay. There is an irony to all of this. And that is, is that it's something you can't see in, cause I'm reading the article to you is that every time the word pastor appears in my article in the first part of it, I bold that bold the word pastor and I underline it because there's an irony here. Okay. Who said that, by the way, the church doesn't exist for you. That was Pastor Furtick, right? Who else has said that? Well, Pastor Perry Noble has said that. Who else has said it? Pastor Mark Beeson has said it. Who else has said it? Pastor Ed Young has said it. Who else has said it? Pastor Eric Dykstra has said it. So, okay, this weird thing is the church doesn't exist for believers, right? Okay. So, by the way, and that's supposed to be one of the, you know, this philosophy is why they do all these things like opening up. Uh, an Easter service with ACDC's Highway to Hell, uh, refusing to preach the Bible with any depth, Michael Jackson's thriller, um, uh, you know, the famous kissing and, and Spider-Man. That's why they, you know, they, they'll say, well, listen, the church doesn't exist for you. That's why we're doing all of those things, right? Okay, so when you call these pastors out on their antics and uh, their responses are predictable and consistent and usually go something like this. <clears throat> Example number one, church attender says, hey, pastor, why don't you ever preach exegetical sermons? I feel like I'm not being fed here because your sermons usually only contain three or four verses taken out of context in order to teach some relevant life principle. <clears throat> Pastor responds, why are you so selfish? The church doesn't exist for you. It's not about you. Okay, that's one example. Okay, Example number two. Church attender says, hey, pastor, why did you have the worship team begin our Easter service with ACDC's Highway to Hell? I mean, rather than a song proclaiming Jesus' victorious resurrection from the grave. I mean, ACDC is worldly at best and satanic at worst, and, and that blasphemous song should not be brought into God's house. Pastor responds, why are you so selfish? The church doesn't exist for you. It's not about you. Church isn't for the already convinced. It's for the yet to be convinced. You sit there and go, huh? Example number three. Church attender says, hey, pastor, why are you preaching about movies rather than preaching God's word like 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 commands? Pastor responds, why are you so selfish? The church doesn't exist for you. It's not about you. Our church exists for people who are not yet believers. Now, <clears throat> notice each time the pastor answered using the standard seeker-driven talking point and doesn't answer the question but makes a blanket claim that the church doesn't exist for believers and therefore the person asking the question is guilty of selfishly believing that the church exists for them. Hmm. Now, anyone who's been railroaded by these tactics knows that something is way off about these claims being made by these seeker-driven pastors, but don't exactly know how to put their finger on the problem or know how to put it into words. Now, this post is going to help you with that. Now, notice that every time the word pastor has appeared thus far, and this is written, I'm pointing to something in the writing version of it, every time the word pastor has appeared thus far in this post that I've bolded it and underlined it. That is to help you to spot the irony of the statements being made by seeker-driven pastors. And that irony will help you identify the underlying error in their tactics and methodologies. So here's the irony. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that the church exists for unbelievers. Let me say that again. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that the church exists for unbelievers, but... There are clear passages that state that pastors and elders are to serve the church. 
Therefore, it is ironic and foolish for a pastor whose job is to serve the church to justify methods that don't serve Christians by claiming that the church doesn't exist for believers. You see the problem? They have a specific job, and their job is to serve believers, and they're doing things for unbelievers that fall outside of their, their biblical mandate, and then they're browbeating people for say, by saying the church doesn't exist for believers. Weird, huh? So here are the key passages that address this topic. We'll begin by first looking at the passages that discuss spiritual gifts. The reason for this is that the ability to teach God's word is a gift that is given by the Holy Spirit to certain people within the body of Christ. So here's the subhead. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up the church, not the world. The Bible teaches that God the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different believers for the building up of the body of Christ. I would point you to like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. But specifically, we could point to um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Okay, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay, that's what uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 there says. Okay, now you're thinking common good. Well, Paul goes on to explain what that is, by the way. Okay. <laughs> okay, so teaching, by the way, is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit gives to pastors, and this gift is to be used specifically for believers. Let me say that again. Teaching is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and it's given to pastors by the Holy Spirit, and this gift is to be specifically used for believers. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13 states this very clearly. Here's what it says. In saying that he, that's Christ, ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Notice it says there, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay? So this verse, okay, clearly and unambiguously, in, in language that you can't miss, literally says that Jesus gave us shepherds and teachers to equip the saints and to build up the body of Christ. Okay? So, in clear and unambiguous language, God states that shepherds, are these are pastors, and teachers in the church exist to equip the saints, not unbelievers, and to build up the body of Christ, not the world. This is clear and irrefutable. Okay? Next subhead. Those who have the gift to teach are commanded to feed Christ's sheep by teaching the word of God. The duties of shepherds and teachers within the church are governed by the instructions given by Jesus Christ. For instance, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17 state, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. 
He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Notice that in this passage, Jesus didn't tell Peter to entertain goats or to dazzle the world. Instead, Christ soberly and firmly reinstates Peter after he had denied Jesus three times. And Peter was reinstated into ministry. And that ministry was to shepherd and feed Christ's sheep. These commands by Jesus to Peter stuck with him his entire life. Peter himself would later exhort elders and pastors with these words from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, it's clear from these passages that that pastors are not literal shepherds and that Christians are not literal sheep. All of these images are metaphors that help create a mental picture of the difficult and sacrificial work of pastors. So when Jesus told Peter to feed my sheep, what was Jesus referring to? What does a pastor feed Christ's sheep with? Well, the answer is simple. The word of God and two passages will suffice in demonstrating this. First one, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 4 says this, But as for you, Paul writing to young pastor Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into into myths. Now, no commentary is needed for these verses because they clearly teach that God's word is sheep food, that pastors are to be feeding to Christ's sheep. So here's the bottom line. The next time you hear a seeker-driven pastor attempt to justify his shallow sermons and entertainment-driven stunts by claiming that the church doesn't exist for believers, kindly inform him that regardless of who the church exists for, his job exists to serve believers and Christ's sheep, and that if he won't do his job, that he's rebelling against Jesus Christ himself. 
All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents... Church Day Select. Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book. Every day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas, because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you can be casual at work. And they's always having that 25-cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole everyday is Friday thing and have made some not-so-nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, But Saturday is so much better. With every day being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy! Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at 
worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, there isn't a single verse in the Bible that says that the church exists for unbelievers. But there are clear passages all over the New Testament that say that pastors exist to serve Christians. Weird, isn't it? Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us financially, we truly could use your help. You can do that by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right in the middle of the page, you'll see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Stephen Furtick update time. You walked up to the pulpit like you were a man of God. Your hair strategically cut to the new style. The fever was making hot. You had one eye on the camera as you watched the crowd applaud. Dreamed you'd be their mentor, you'd be their mentor, and you're so vain. You probably think the Bible's about you, you're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you? Don't you? Yeah, I gotta get out of that falsetto. Who me several years ago? 
gospel, heard the real gospel, and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you, you're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? Alright, so um, Stephen Furtick has been working his way through his latest sermon series. He finished the whole greater thing and is now on to telling ghost stories. And I think that's probably a good way to put it. He thinks he's teaching pneumatology, pneuma being the word for spirit. He thinks he's teaching biblical pneumatology, but he's not because you can't teach biblical pneumatology unless, well, (laughs) you're using the Bible to teach about the spirit. Yeah, alright, let me uh, kill the music here. Oh, man. Dun, dun, dun. All right, enough of that. You're so vain. <laughs> One of my all-time favorite uh, music interludes, uh, update music here at Fighting for the Faith. Okay, so this is from the first sermon in uh, Stephen Sir- uh, Furtick's Ghost Stories sermon series. And uh, the, the uh, subtitle of this is, uh, you know, something about, you, you know, you, you need an upgrade, you know, talking about upgrading your software, your hard drive or your operating system or whatever. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out to you is because this is exactly the wrong way to teach biblical doctrine. And what I mean by that is this. Your experiences do not a biblical doctrine make. Nope. In fact, if you're going to teach a biblical doctrine, for instance, you know, tell us about God, the Holy Spirit, in order to do so, you must actually open up your Bible and teach it and what it says. So, but Stephen Furtick apparently, you know, again, I think he needs remedial hermeneutics, you know, because the person he always likes to preach about is himself. So, I mean, Stephen Furtick, apparently because he's had experiences with the Holy Spirit, those experiences of his life somehow rise to the level of telling us the truth about the Holy Spirit rather than God's Word. Weird, huh? Yeah, here's Stephen Furtick to explain. The title of the remainder of my message today is An Update is Available. <laughs> An update. Would you tell five people around you? The reason I want it to be five is in honor of my new phone. Yeah, he got the iPhone 5. He's special. Find five people and tell them an update is available. An update is available. An update is available. An update is available. You may be seated. Isn't God good? Isn't he good? Y'all want to go home or you want to hear the rest of this message? We have, oh, I'd like to go home, please. <laughs> Four weeks together to learn all about the Spirit of God. Great. I mean, that's a fine topic, by the way. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking time and digging into what the Bible teaches regarding God, the Holy Spirit. That is a great sermon topic. No, no problems whatsoever. But if you're going to do that, you got to actually teach the Bib- teach it from the biblical text, not your life. It's intimidating as a preacher. So I'm looking for a few ways to simplify something that could otherwise be complex and confusing. So... I brought out my new iPhone because when I got it, 
not psychotic enough to wait in line for it, but I did want it enough to order it. And when it came in the mail, it brought back a memory. The memory was of the first cellular device that I ever... Okay, I want to point something out here. This is backwards. It's like 180 degrees backwards. Here's the reason why. Okay, listen. No, there's nothing wrong with illustrating a biblical truth from your life. Okay, and what I mean by that is this. Is that let's say a pastor is preaching through a particular biblical text. They read the text and they look up and everyone has a big question mark sitting right over their foreheads and because they, they don't understand what the text says. And so the pastor says, okay, this text, what this is saying, well, it's like this. There was a time when I da-da-da-da-da and I did this and then this is what the result was. And see, this little illustration here demonstrates what God's word is saying in this passage. But notice what Stephen Furtick is doing here. He's starting with a life story. So what's governing our understanding of God the Holy Spirit in this sermon? Not a biblical text because he hasn't, well, opened the Bible yet to a particular text. He's going to demonstrate something about the Holy Spirit from a memory he had about his first cellular phone experience. But he's not actually doing this with an open Bible at the point at this point. So what's governing the Bible, if he even gets to it, is his life experience. That, see, that's, that's like 180 degrees backwards. Encountered. All of the laughter is coming from people who were born after the year 1980 or before the year 1982. If you remember this, uh, this item known as the bag phone, I remember those. Make some noise. The bag phone. Fantastic. For its time. Yeah. Only reason I've ever seen one of these is because I worked at this little fireworks stand in... Goose Creek, South Carolina. Isn't it weird that he's going to teach us about God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and rather than opening up the Bible and teaching us about God the Holy Spirit, we're getting a life story about Stephen Furtick. Yeah. Okay. If you're wondering where is Goose Creek, South Carolina, it's just outside of Monk's Corner, South Carolina. <laughs> just question, does Monk's Monks, whatever, South Carolina, appear anywhere in the book of maps in my Bible. If not, it's really, don't, can't we, like, focus on God's word here? Where I grew up, and I would work at this fireworks stand at night, alone, and... Yeah, that's great and all, but what is, and does this have to do with Jesus, the Bible, doctrine, anything like that? I mean, yeah, why are we always hearing about you when you preach? Somebody thought it was dangerous for a 14-year-old boy to work at the Goose Creek fireworks stand where the ratio of mullets and guns tends to be a little bit higher and the proximity to explosives frightened my mother enough that she told my boss that he needed to help with this security situation. So he brought me a bag phone. And when I got the bag phone from Zach Morris, I, I, I was instructed 
uh, don't use it. Because <laughs> it's like $973 a minute if you actually use it. <laughs> Times were different. You can dial 911 if you're sure somebody has a gun and it's loaded. If they just have an empty gun, don't use it. But you can use it in case of emergencies. Now that's funny, but wouldn't it be a little strange if you and I had the opportunity to get together one day? We were getting to know one another. And in the middle of our conversation, I was interrupted by the ringing of a phone. I reached down. And I pulled out my bag phone. (laughs) And I took the call and I hung it up and I looked at you as if there were nothing strange about the phone that I chose to use for my communication. I I think it'd be a little bit strange. I think if you really loved me, you would inform me. You know that that phone you're carrying around, uh, the technology, Pastor Stephen, has come a long way. Since the days of your Goose Creek security issues. Yes, no clue what on earth this has anything to do with any of the biblical passages pertaining to God, the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's teaching pneumatology here, apparently. There, there, there are so many things available today that were not available then. You might want to try out a, a smartphone. You may suggest an iPhone. You may suggest another line of phone. I didn't really come to preach to you about phones today. I came to talk to you about how so many believers in our church are carrying around an old way of thinking about who God is that is so limited. So there's believers out there with outdated technology regarding who God is. Um, if you're going to teach us about God, the Holy Spirit, shouldn't you be opening up a Bible at this point? I mean, what are you talking about? So there's apparently there's a bunch of Christians out there using old phone technology when it comes to God, the Holy, who knew? I mean, wow, that sounds like a bane on Christianity, you know? And that is so small and is so archaic. I, I think it's. I think it's in your best interest that I inform you today. Uh, there, there's an update available. There, there's, there... Really? So there's, there's an update to the Holy Spirit? That, and there's Christians out there with an archaic view of God? The, hmm, I wonder where they... Where would Christians get an archaic view of the Holy Spirit? Unless, of course, they were relying on that really old book, you know, like <laughs> the, the Bible... Yeah, because that's like 2,000 years old, you know, know, at least parts, the New Testament parts. There's something more to knowing God than just praying a prayer when you get in trouble or getting to heaven when you die or just doing certain things so you can have good God luck on the earth. And that's something that update is only possible through the Holy Spirit over the next few moments in our opening session of this series, Ghost Stories, I want to talk to you in detail about that update. I've written down uh, a few points. I don't know how many we'll get to cover in our time. To- <clears throat> Quick question. Where in the Bible is this update mentioned? Together, that is allotted. The good thing is I'll be back next week and the next week and the next week and the next week and the next week so I can continue this series. How many of you think you can join us for at least 
three of the four weeks of this series. Would you raise your hand? Come on, I'm counting on you. That's pretty weak display at Blakeney. I can't imagine what it looks like where I'm not even standing on the stage at the video. How many of you will make a concerted effort to be here three of the four weeks to hear this teaching? And how many of you are like, I don't know, it depends on what you say the first week. I got to get this first one out of the way. I'm going to be here once. All right, bro, I'll see you. But remember now, you can't go to the gym one time. Talking about, why, why, where, where are my abs? <laughs> you, you can't go to the gym one time and talk about where are my results. And you can't come to church just one time and say, God, fill me. I used to hear that the Holy Spirit was like the gas that you need in your vehicle. And you're the vehicle. And the Holy Ghost is the gas pump. And got to fill up. But the thing I've discovered about the Holy Spirit of God is that the Spirit of God is a lot less like a gas pump, a lot more like the air that I breathe. I need him every minute, every hour of every day. Uh, Where did you discover that from? You know, yeah, I just, I'm asking because you know what's not happening yet? Um, Him teaching about the Holy Spirit, you know, from the Bible. Weird. So he's discovered all the stuff about the Holy Spirit from his life experiences, as if somehow those rise to the level of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives us finally a, pa- a passage about uh, a passage of Scripture. No way. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, why do I feel like this isn't going to go well for uh Mr. Furtick. Some incredible insight into the Holy Spirit. I think this is one of the most revealing scriptures where the greatest preacher other than Jesus Christ who ever lived, in my opinion, tells us a little bit about the method of the madness of his preaching and gives away some of our trade secrets as preachers. He says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. That verse makes me feel a lot better about myself. For I, verse 2, resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. Now, notice how quickly he went over that little part there. Let me highlight that verse for you Uh, from the Bible itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Watch this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Who do you think the Apostle Paul preached about? Jesus. Okay. He, he chose to know nothing, nothing among them except for Christ and him crucified. Now, Stephen Furtick just read that verse. Just Read that verse. In fact, I, I want to back up and get a little bit more of the context of that verse. I mean, it's just that good. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, uh, for since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, 
Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's right. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming you to the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, there's that passage, okay? Furtick is going to read a couple more verses, okay? And here's, the, let me continue a little bit more. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's going to go on to, to read that, but notice the point that Paul's making. We chose to know, I chose to know nothing among you. Nothing. Zip. Zero. Nada. Nothing. Okay? Among you except Christ and Him crucified. Who does uh, Stephen Furtick preach about? <laughs> well, so far, who's he been preaching about? Himself. It's as if the, the Stephen Furtick should be, you know, if he were to write the vertically audaciously revised translation, it would read here, I chose to know nothing among you except for Stephen Furtick and him glorified, something like that. But let me back up the audio a little bit here so you can hear him actually say it and then go on to talk about himself. No kidding. Yeah, watch. Oh. For I, verse 2, resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. The first thing I wanted you to write down, if you like to take notes and only people who like to take notes are the people who love God. The first thing I wanted you to write down is the Holy Spirit. We're going to do some comparing and contrasting to set ourselves up for what God wants to show us in the coming weeks. The Holy Spirit is the operating system, not an app. Now, where exactly did you get that? The Holy Spirit is the operating system of the life of a believer, not an app. Okay, um, that's not what 1 Corinthians 2 is saying. Okay, remember, we've chosen nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified, right? What I mean to say is that Paul made it clear that his only hope for effectiveness in ministry was the Spirit of God and the power of God working inside of him. And then as the Spirit works inside of him, it works outside as well. Okay, all right. So uh, tell some more. The difficult thing for me about preaching is never preparing a message. Oh, now we're preaching about himself again. Difficult thing for me is knowing which message to prepare. And there's a sense in which I guess anything I would preach from the Bible would be helpful, but 
Yeah, except for you don't really do that. I found out that it's best when I come to you with a dependency on the Spirit of God. I used to think that the Spirit of God was a part of the sermons that I preached. So there's the moment when I come up and let's sing it again. And there's the moment when I close and maybe invite people to give their lives to Christ. And boy, I need the Spirit. The rest of the time I was talking and working and thinking and explaining. One day I realized that the Spirit of God is is not an accessory to my preaching. It was, in fact, the engine of anything good that will happen while I preach to you. And when I learned that, I stopped worrying so much, as Paul teaches us here, about my own eloquence and my own brilliance, which was doubtful to begin with. I mean, I'm not some kind of incredible order. I'm really not. I'm a little bit embarrassed about how hard I have to work sometimes just to even learn the stuff that I preach to you. It it released me to know that, that I need the Spirit of God more than I need human wisdom, more, more than I need to be able <clears throat> Let me point this out. He, who's he preaching about again? Himself. So here we've got the verse that then allows him to launch into his life. The verse basically was used as the illustration for to affirm what his, you know, his life stories. This is 180 degrees backwards. Stephen Furtick preaches about Stephen Furtick. He then reads a verse that talks about where Paul says, I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified, and then launches into another story about his life. This is 180 degrees backwards. It's upside down. It's inside out. This is not what a preacher is supposed to be doing. And now he's, again, building his pneumatology on all of his life experiences. You see, that's not what the pastor's supposed to do. Because if he was actually really, for sure, really engaging in biblical exegesis, what would he be doing? He'd have an open Bible on his pulpit. You could do it via iPad now if you choose to do that. He'd have an open Bible on his pulpit, and he would tell people, open up their Bibles to such and such a passage. He would read it, he would exegete it, and he would preach Christ from it, the way Paul did, right? Um, But he's not doing that. He starts off with a life story, throws in a verse for good measure, then launches into another life story. Now, I've listened to the whole sermon, and that's his standard operating procedure. Furtick preaches Furtick, and he's preaching pneumatology based upon his experiences with God the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely asinine. It's backwards, upside down, and completely wrong-headed and wrong. And this is not... What a pastor is supposed to do. The pastor is supposed to preach the word. Shut up about yourself. You, I could care less where you grew up. I don't care about you know what kind of phone you used first when cellular technology came out or whatever. Your job is to preach the word. You're wasting these people's time. The job of the pastor is to preach the word. Oh, but then again, I forgot. The people who attend Elevation Church, yeah, if they came there with the Feed me, bless me. That church doesn't exist for them, does it? No, it exists for the person who isn't already there. At least that's what Stephen Furtick says. Maybe that explains why he spends so much time preaching about himself, because if he were to preach the word, well, then people would get the false impression that, 
while church is for them. All right, um, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we have three fantastic sermons, all from the same gospel text in the Gospel of Mark. You don't want to miss it. it they're, just, they're just brilliant. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition, fighting, uh, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're well into it now. See, we got Brent Kuhlman, Cy Van Manen, and Ron Hodel. Huh. You're gonna like these. Alright, here we go. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today we have three fantastic good gospel sermons or law and gospel by the way um preached by in in this order brent coolman of uh, trinity lutheran church murdoch nebraska and then um uh, cy van manen of river bend lutheran church up there now in canada and uh then the ron hodel uh in uh Capistrano Beach, California. The first sermon, by the way, uh, is uh, from Brent Kuhlman, and it's entitled, Trust Jesus Only? Yes, that's right. Okay. 
And by the way, each of these sermons is based upon the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, which I will read here in a minute. So uh, Brent Coleman will be first, Trust Jesus Only? Yes, that's right. Then Cy Van Manen's sermon is entitled Unlimited Liability. And then when we're done with listening to that, we will listen to Ron Hodel preach on the same text entitled, He Was a Good Man. He Was a Good Man. So let me kill the music here. And without any further ado, let me read for you the, uh, the gospel text that will make, form the basis for all three of these sermons. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, starting at verse 17, finishing at 22, it reads this. And as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I've done, I've kept from my youth. And Jesus said to and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, this is the gospel text that all three of these pastors are going to be preaching from. And let's just say, two of them are similar. One is different, but they're all law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and salvation by what Christ has done. First up today is Brent Kuhlman. Here is his sermon entitled, Trust Jesus Only? Yes, that's right. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text is the Holy Gospel. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, well, a seeker, he comes to Jesus. You can't, you can't get any easier than that, can it? And he even calls Jesus good. Double bonus. And he's a man of moral integrity. Triple bonus. He's, nary, he's no Jerry Sandusky, let alone a John Travolta. He's a hard worker. He's earned his money and property without stealing from others or defrauding them. He speaks well of people. He honors his parents and other authorities. He doesn't sleep around. He's squeaky clean. We'd love to have this guy in our congregation, wouldn't we? Parents, oh, you'd be delighted to have your daughter bring this hardworking and clean-cut guy home for Thanksgiving, wouldn't you? Oh, sure, he's no Justin Bieber, and he's certainly not a Zac Efron or Robert Pattinson. But, you know, beggars can't be choosers, can they, ladies? When it comes to eye candy, he's really not that bad. Then comes the quadruple bonus round. He's quite religious, too. He takes the Ten Commandments seriously. I've been that way all of his life, he says. He's a doer. He talks the talk, but he also walks the walk. Let's make him a member of Trinity Murdoch pronto, shall we? In fact, let's let him take the pulpit at once because he's probably a better preacher than the one you've got, being so religious in all that he is. Now it's time for this wonderful, delightful hunk of a young man to put the finishing touches on his eternal welfare. He's got everything right with other people. Now it's time to make sure that he and the big man upstairs are okay, or <clears throat> that the man upstairs is at least okay with him. 
And so this easy on the eyes of a young man asked Jesus the salvation question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow. Who's doing the verb in his salvation question? What must I do? With the question, he insists on being the big cheese, as if he's in the salvation driver's seat. He seems to be a salvation control freak. He'll do it. Just tell me what to do, Jesus, and I'll do it. I can do it. Give me the principles. What must I do? Tell me. Hurry up. I'm waiting. I'm a mover and a shaker, Jesus. I make conglomerate business deals. I get things done. Good grief. In fact, I'm about ready to close a blockbuster deal with the Roman Colosseum bigwigs trying to buy lions and elephants and pythons and baboons from North African merchants for the circuses in Rome. So speak up, Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'll get right to it, and I'll leave you alone so that you can do your, um, yeah, whatever you do. Thank you for your time. This man is blind to the fact that eternal life is a gift. Eternal life is an inheritance and therefore a gift. But he insists, good Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he's bullish, he's obstinate, he's a do-it-yourself kind of guy, even when it comes to the salvation job. Now, Jesus goes to the heart of his do-it-yourself religion. Jesus says, and I paraphrase, I'm here to help you, son. Your religiosity is quite impressive. However, your uber-spirituality lacks something. Here's what it is. Sell. All your stuff. That's right, I said it, all of it. Liquidate all your assets and your bank accounts. Turn it all into cash. Add it up. I don't care. What do you got? Thousands? Millions? Ooh, impressive. Now, give it. Give it all to the poor. Oh, sure, you won't have your stuff, but I tell you, you're going to have heavenly treasure, eternal life, by trusting in me. So, young man, learn a new spirituality. Learn a new religion. I'm the giver, and you're the receiver. I'll take care of you. Not only now, but forever, I promise. And one of these nights, young man, a Passover night... A night when I am betrayed, I will hand out my last will and testament, and I'll spell it out this way, bread and wine, and with the bread, my body, and with the cup of wine, my blood, the New Testament in my blood, all for you, all sin forgiven, pure <clears throat> gift, no strings attached. Now, in order to put my last will and testament into effect, I will die on a Friday afternoon that my disciples will call good. And so, young man, when it comes to the salvation job, here's the deal. I'm the only game in town. I'm the only ticket you need for heaven. The salvation verb <clears throat> belongs to me. I achieve salvation for all. I will say when it is finished, and I will dish out all of salvation's benefits. I'm the Lord your God. I'm standing right here before your very eyes. So come along, young man. Follow me. Be given to exclusively by me. I will take care of you. Now, even if you don't have anything, <laughs> I'll take care of you. And also forevermore. <laughs> 
And the hunk of a young man jumps at the promise of salvation that Jesus just gave, right? Nope. His jaw hits the ground. His eyes look down in the dirt. And he turns. And he walks away. He will not be given to by Jesus. He won't let Jesus do the eternal life, eternal salvation verb. That's a complete letdown and a turnoff for a dyed-in-the-wool salvation activist. He was all hyped up about doing the salvation job himself. He even enlisted good Jesus advice. Sell everything, give it all to the poor, then trust in Jesus. Lose everything, lose my life. No way! Not a snowball's chance in... He trusted his stuff. He feared, loved, and trusted in his wealth and possessions, but not Jesus. If he unloads all of his stuff, well, I just can't take that chance. I can't trust Jesus for that. No, no. Even if he ends up with that snowball in. Now, what about you? Are you ready to walk away from Jesus today? He's here, right before your very eyes, in his word and sacrament, with the whole enchilada of salvation as pure gift. So what do you fear, love, and trust above Jesus? What hinders you from trusting Jesus' promise to take care of everything for you, both now and forevermore? What idol forbids you from following Jesus? What is it that forbids you, that won't let you receive gifts from Jesus? Is it your property? Is it your wealth? Or is it something else? Well, whatever the idol is, I tell you, it will crack. And it will break under the pressure that you put on it. Your idol cannot handle all your fear, your concerns, your guilt, your sin, even your eternal salvation. Oh yes, the idol promises you heaven, but it only delivers hell. It promises life, but it only delivers death. It claims to be your God, but it lies. Jesus doesn't. He tells the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I am the Lord your God. That's his promise. He gives himself entirely for you with all that he is and all that he has. He reconciles you to the Father with his blood. The Father is not angry with you. God the Father doesn't hate you. He loves you for Christ's sake. He forgives you for Christ's sake. He gives you eternal life for his son's sake. And so you are saved in Christ. He is your Lord. Now, you don't have to sell everything and give it to the poor. That was Jesus' way of dealing with that particular hunk of a young religious man that you don't want your daughter to bring home now for Thanksgiving dinner. But in Jesus and his promise of salvation as gift for you, You are now free. You are now free to use your property, to use your wealth or your possessions to serve other people who need your help. And who's that? Well, that's your family, that's your congregation, that's your community, your country, and the world. What you have is from the Lord to begin with. He's the one who gives you all your stuff but not to turn it into an idol. 
but rather to use it as gifts for other people. And so, brothers and sisters, died for by the Lord Jesus, you then are his instruments to use your worldly wealth and whatever stuff that he's given you in order to help those in need and those who are indeed helpless. And as you freely use your wealth or whatever to help your neighbor, did you know who you're doing it to as well? Not just for the neighbor, but who else? To the Lord. You remember what he said in Matthew 25? Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. Brothers and sisters, happy following Jesus. He's going to take good care of you. In fact, he already has. And he always will. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, your baptism, absolution, his supper, eternal life, even now. And then, of course, revealed on the last day for our eyes to see and our bodies to experience in the resurrection of our body. So again, happy following him. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Gotta tell you, Kuhlman is like becoming like <clears throat> my one of my all-time favorite pastors. Yeah, this <laughs> that is just some prophetic preaching right there. Okay, sermon number two from Riverbend Lutheran Church up in Alberta, Canada. Um, the this one's entitled "Unlimited Liability." Here is Pastor Cy Van Manen. Grace and mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today. It's from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, which you heard a few moments ago. Dear friends in Christ, there is a term in the military that we use called unlimited liability. In business, this is a condition in which the owners are held personally responsible for any and all debts created by that business. But as a soldier, I am not in the business of collecting debt. As Canadian soldiers, we are reminded that every time we put on our uniform, we have an unlimited liability to give up all, including our lives in defense of the queen and her heirs and this country and her citizens. That means when the government calls me to task, I don't have to like it. I don't have to agree with it. I am called to do it, regardless of what my thoughts might be for or against it. I don't get to argue or conscientiously object to the task set before me. And what it costs in terms of blood is not my choice to make. If the queen or her Canadian subjects have a debt to pay, a fight to pick, or a war to win, and the cost is my life, then I am required to give it. That is unlimited liability. Not my favorite part of being a soldier by any means, but all things considered, Compared to what the Lord asks of the rich young ruler today, in order to inherit eternal life, the sacrifice of my life seems easy. For the rich young man asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. What are the requirements, the obligations, not just for this life, but what must he do to inherit the next life? Good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It is interesting because this rich young man does not address Jesus as Lord, as the disciples do, because he does not know Jesus in the light that he should. This rich young man does not know Jesus, so he addresses him as good teacher. Good, Jesus replies, no one is good but God alone. 
And then Jesus sets out the requirements for him to inherit eternal life. This arrogant young man, he says to him, you know the commands, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. This is basically the second table of the commandments. What he must do to serve his neighbor. God does not even put in the first three that have to do with him as God. But the rich young man responds not with, well, I've I've done okay, or I've slipped up a few times, but I'm basically good. No, he says, all of these I have kept since my youth. The requirements are, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And this man says, I have been. He asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What am I liable for? And Jesus offers the answer to this man and to us. You want heaven? Keep the law in thought and word and deed. Unlimited liability to God's law and you shall have it. My own sinful nature says along with this rich young man, why do all right at these commands? Perfection though? Come on God, you ask too much. Because the Holy Spirit also lives within us. We do not see perfection in the face of God's law, but utter and total failure to keep it. In the face of this, I stop dead in my tracks, realizing that I do not deserve to live forever. And though I would give up all to have heaven, my all, my unlimited liability is limited. For my sacrifice of all, even my possessions, amount to nothing. As God's law shows me how absolutely shallow my thoughts and my words and my deeds are. But this arrogant young ruler thinks that he has kept all of these. In fact, the Lord offers him eternal life in his works. And this man thinks he has done all that God requires. But he still spurns the Lord answer and says, Nope, that is not what is required. For I have done that. And I still don't feel secure in my salvation. What else am I liable for? What else is required of me? Jesus here shows him how shallow his piety truly is. When he says, well, you lack only one thing then. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. When the rubber hits the road, this young man has a problem. He has another God that blinds him to the one that looks at him and loves him. I know we are tempted to say when we read this text that it is money, but it is not. This young man's God is himself. He breaks the first commandment and places himself before God in the flesh who offers him eternal life. This man goes away sad, not because he is rich, but because his heart is filled with a false God who blinds him to the truth that he did not keep God's commands, that he is the chief of sinners, that he cannot do what is required to sacrifice enough to inherit eternal life. None of us can. When it comes to our unlimited liability, we in our sin cannot sacrifice enough to put aside our gods of pride or pleasure or personal pleasing to turn around and come to the Christ. As we see from the text, Mark tells us, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus loved this man. He wants this man. He died 
for this man. This man is not different from you or from me, with the exception of this. John Dyer said, A man may go to heaven without riches, without honor, without learning, without friends, but he can never go there without Jesus Christ. The one thing that this rich man lacked that you do not is Jesus Christ. Our Lord saw our limited ability and gave himself up, made himself liable for all of our sin. His liability is truly unlimited in that he gave up everything. His crown, his throne, his spot at the right hand of God. To take up frail flesh, to live through this veil of tears, to live in this life, to carry a cross to a hill called Golgotha, to there be nailed to that cross and die with all of our sin of arrogance, of pride, of false gods put into his flesh. There he died the death that we deserve, so that we would know that he is, in the, he is the Christ, and that in him we would inherit eternal life. Dear friends, what is it that you lack? Nothing. Nothing. God looks at you and loves you for the sake of his son. What must you do to inherit eternal life? What are you liable for? Nothing. Christ did it all. Your sins are forgiven and salvation is secure for the sake of him who sacrificed all. So that we who bring nothing could have heaven. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Mm, 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 mm. Short, sweet, and right to the point. Preaching Christ. Preaching the text, too. You see, that's what it sounds like to actually preach a text compared to like a Stephen Verdict. All right. Last sermon here is from uh, Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. Pastor Ron Hodel and his sermon, He Was a Good Man. In the name of Jesus, amen. He comes to Jesus, and he's not hostile. He's an evangelism committee's dream. It can't get any easier than that. He calls Jesus good. This man is of great integrity, honors his father and his mother and others in authority over him. He's squeaky clean. No sexual dalliances, one night stands. He's worked hard for his money. And all that he has without stealing from others or defrauding them speaks well of people. He's the, he's the kind of guy we'd like to have in our congregation. He's the kind of guy you'd love to have your daughter bring home. And not just because he's rich. But that's not all. He's quite religious too. Takes the Ten Commandments seriously, and he's been this way his whole life. He's the real thing. Loves God. Doesn't take God's holy name in vain. Attends synagogue every Sabbath. Now it's time to make sure he's dotted all his religious I's. Crossed all his theological T's. And Jesus seems to be the one to ask. For some reason, Jesus just seems to know something of God and what pleases him. So, Jesus, good man, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. Notice who's doing the doing in this man's salvation question. What must I do? So many holes in his question. You don't do anything when it comes to inheritance except show up when the executor is giving out the goods. But that's not the point. Down deep, this good man wants to be in control. He wants to be the one managing his own eternal life, and for good reason. He's done a pretty good job managing his temporal affairs. So just tell me what I need to do, Jesus, and I'll do it. Blind to the fact that eternal life is a gift. He doesn't even hear himself. Doing and inheriting don't belong together in the same sentence. Eternal life is an inheritance, a gift. But he insists on being the one doing the doing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus goes to the heart of this man's do-it-yourself religion. He could have started where he ended up, with the first commandment. But instead of arguing about whether or not this good man really has no other gods, Jesus takes him straight into the heart of the temple of the other god itself. Jesus takes him straight into his own heart. Jesus says, I'm here to help you. And by the way, you are an awesome guy. Your spirituality lacks only one thing. And here it is. Sell all your stuff. Get rid of your stocks. Liquidate your retirement accounts. Put your house on the market. Your furnishings on Craigslist. Add it all up. What's it total? Thousands? Millions? Whatever it is, it's rather substantial, that's for sure. Take it all and give it to the poor. Sure, you won't have all of your stuff, but you'll have a heavenly treasure by trusting me. And I promise, I will take care of you. Not only now, but forever. One of these nights, Passover night, that night when I'm betrayed, I'll hand out my last will and testament and I'll put your name right in it. I'll spell it out this way. Bread and wine. With the wine, my body. With the cup, or with the bread, my, my body. With the cup of wine, the New Testament in my blood. All for you. And for all of you. And with it, all your sin forgiven. Pure gift. Inheritance. No strings attached. No you doing anything. And quite obviously, if it is a last will and testament, in order to put it into effect, I will have to die on a Friday afternoon and rise again three days later. Rich young man, there's one thing you've got to know. When it comes to the salvation job, I'm the only game in town. All the salvation verbs belong to me. 
I do the doing. You do the receiving. And when I say it is finished, it is finished. And there's nothing you can add to it. Thou shalt have no other gods because I am the Lord your God. So come follow me and receive to overflowing what I have to give. Well, what would you do? Better yet, what do you do? The rich young man turns and walks away. He's got big problems with what Jesus says. First, it can't be just that easy. And second, that there's not a blessed thing for me to do To add to Jesus' work just doesn't add up. That kind of talk doesn't suit a hardworking guy who's earned all he's got. To give up all I've earned and simply trust you, Jesus? I don't think so. The law does its work. It exposes the temple of this other God. His very heart. Deep down, he trusted his stuff, feared, loved, and trusted his wealth and his possessions. And if he unloads all his stuff, well, he he just can't take that chance. Won't trust Jesus. Can't. What about you? Are you going to walk away from Jesus too? What do you fear, love, and trust above all things? Above Him. What hinders you from trusting Jesus' promise to take care of everything, not only in the forever, but even in the now? What idol has absorbed you and forbids you from following Jesus? What idol gets in your way of receiving gifts from Him? Property, wealth, skills, a cabin in the mountains, a ship in the harbor, a relationship, something else. What would you do? Better yet, what have you done? What are you doing? What idols got you all tangled up in its web right now? What's sitting on the throne in your heart? Know this, whatever the idol is, like all idols, it will crack. And it will crumble under the pressure that you put on it. Your idol can't handle all your fears. Your idol can't handle all your concerns. Your idol can't cleanse your conscience of its guilt, your sin. Sure, idols promise heaven, and at first, it looks like they're coming through. But then... They promise all sorts of things. Happiness, satisfaction, joy, contentment. Promise you heaven, but in the end, they can only deliver hell. They promise life and only hand over death. They claim to be your God, but they lie 
They are merely useless, deceitful, empty godlets. Jesus doesn't lie. He tells you the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the Lord your God. That's his promise. He gives himself entirely for you. All that he is and all that he has reconciles you to the Father by his shed blood. The Father is not angry with you. He doesn't hate you. He loves you for Christ's sake. Forgives you for Christ's sake. Gives you eternal life for Christ's sake. You're saved in Christ. He is your Lord. And now, you're free. You're free to use your property. You're free to spend your wealth. You're free to give up your possessions. To share what you have. Not to gain something from God by it. As if it is a, what must I do to inherit eternal life kind of thing. But rather, now you are free to use all that you have, all that he's put into your care, even your very self, in service to your neighbor, your family, your congregation, your community, your country, your world. You're his instruments to use all the stuff he's put into your care to help those who are in need. And as you use your stuff to help your neighbor, you do it to Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Great way to end the week. Good stuff. Looking forward to Sunday already. All right. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>